0: Part Two, Chapter Nine of The Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part Two, Chapter Nine The Great Battle. The news that an open rupture had occurred between the generals of the two invading armies was not slow in circulating. The early editions of the evening papers were full of it. A symposium of the opinions of Dr. Emil Reich, Dr. Salby, Sandow, mister Kiosa Kyoza-Money, and Lady Grove was hastily collected. Young men with knobbly and bulging foreheads were turned on by their editors to write character sketches of the two generals. All was stir and activity. Meanwhile, those who look after London's public amusements were busy with telephone and telegraph. The quarrel had taken place on Friday night. It was probable that, unless steps were taken, the battle would begin early on Saturday. Which, it did not require a man of unusual intelligence to see, would mean a heavy financial loss to those who supplied London with its Saturday afternoon amusements. The matinees would suffer. The battle might not affect the stalls and dress circle, perhaps, but there could be no possible doubt that the pit and gallery receipts would fall off terribly to the public, which supports the pit and gallery of a theatre, there is an irresistible attraction about a fight on anything like a large scale. When one considers that a quite ordinary street fight will attract hundreds of spectators, it will be plainly seen that no theatrical entertainment could hope to compete against so strong a counter-attraction as a battle between the German and Russian armies. The various football grounds would be heavily hit, too and there was to be a monster roller-skating carnival at Olympia. That would also be spoiled. A deputation of amusement-caterers hurried to the two camps within an hour of the appearance of the first evening paper. They put their case plainly and well. The generals were obviously impressed. Messages passed and repassed between the two armies, and in the end it was decided to put off the outbreak of hostilities till Monday morning satisfactory as this undoubted was for the theatre-managers and directors of football-clubs, it was in some ways a pity. From the standpoint of the historian it spoiled the whole affair. But for the postponement, readers of this history might, nay would, have been able to absorb a vivid and masterly account of the great struggle, with a careful description of the tactics by which victory was achieved. They would have been told the disposition of the various regiments, the stratagems, the dashing advances, the skilful retreats, and the lessons of the war. As it is, owing to the mistaken good nature of the rival generals, the date of the fixture was changed, and practically all that a historian can do is to record the result. A slight mist had risen as early as four o'clock on Saturday. By nightfall the atmosphere was a little dense but the lamp-posts were still clearly visible at a distance of some feet, and nobody, accustomed living in London, would have noticed anything much out of the common. It was not till Sunday morning that the fog proper really began. London awoke on Sunday to find the world blanketed in the densest, yellowest London particular that had been experienced for years. It was the sort of day when the city clerk has the exhilarating certainty that at last he has an excuse for lateness which cannot possibly be received with harsh disbelief. People spent the day indoors and hoped it would clear up by tomorrow. "'They can't possibly fight if it's like this,' they told each other. But on the Monday morning the fog was, if possible, denser. It wrapped London about as with a garment. People shook their heads. "'They'll have to put it off,' they were saying, when of a sudden, boom, and again, boom!' It was the sound of heavy guns. The battle had begun. One does not wish to grumble or make a fuss. But still it does seem a little hard that a battle of such importance—a battle so outstanding in the history of the world—should have been fought under such conditions. London at that moment was richer than ever before in descriptive reporters. It was the age of descriptive reporters, of vivid pen-pictures. In every newspaper office there were men who could have hauled up their slacks about that battle in a way that would have made a Y.M.C.A. lecturer want to get at somebody with a bayonet—men who could have handed out the adjectives and exclamation marks till you almost heard the roar of the guns. And there they were, idle, supine, like careened battleships. They were helpless. Bart Kennedy did an article which began, "'Fog, Black Fog.' and the roar of guns. Two nations fighting in the fog. But it never came to anything. It was promising for a while, but it died of inanition in the middle of the second stick. It was hard. The lot of the actual war correspondence was still worse. It was useless for them to explain that the fog was too thick to give them a chance. "'If it's light enough for them to fight,' said their editors remorselessly, "'it's light enough for you to watch them.' and out they had to go. They had a perfectly miserable time. Edgar Wallace seems to have lost his way almost at once. He was found two days later in an almost starving condition at Steeple Bumpstead. How he got there nobody knows. He said he had set out to walk to where the noise of the guns seemed to be, and had gone on walking. Bennett Burley, that crafty old campaigner, had the sagacity to go by tube. This brought him to Hampstead, the scene, it turned out later, of the fiercest operations, and with any luck he might have had a story to tell. But the lift stuck halfway up owing to a German shell bursting in its neighborhood, and it was not till the following evening that a search party heard and rescued him. The rest, A. G. Hales, Frederick Villiers, Charles Hans, and the others, met on a smaller scale, the same fate as Edgar Wallace. Hales, starting for Tottenham, arrived in Croydon, very tired, with a nail in his boot, Villiers, equally unlucky, fetched up at Richmond. The most curious fate of all was reserved for Charles' hands. As far as can be gathered he got on all right till he reached Leicester Square. There he lost his bearings and seems to have walked round and round Shakespeare's statue, under the impression that he was going straight to Tottenham. After a day and a half of this he sat down to rest, and was there found when the fog had cleared by a passing policeman and all the while the unseen guns boomed and thundered, and strange thin shoutings came faintly through the darkness. End of part two, chapter nine.